and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we're highlighting that it, it is National Human Trafficking Prevention Month because we want to bring awareness to this ongoing issue of sexual trafficking. It happens not only globally, but in this country as well. And we're honored to have on Sherry Lopez to give her firsthand account of being groomed and trafficked at the age of 15 in 1980, well before there was an official name for what was happening to her. Sherry Lopez is the founder of the nonprofit Pearl at the Mailbox. And Sherry, I know we're going to get into how you came up with your nonprofit's organization's name, Pearl at the Mailbox. But first, let me just welcome welcome you to She Thinks and just thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity to share. And something that you were mentioning to me before we started recording, you've also written a memoir. So you've put all of this in the in a book. What is the name of your book and where can people get if they want to get more details to your story? Sure. It's called Pearl at the Mailbox, and you can find it on Amazon. Awesome. Well, we're going to jump into your story here. As I just mentioned, you were somebody who was groomed, you were trafficked, and I just want to break down some of the numbers for people right now, and that is, I think there's this misperception that grooming and trafficking doesn't happen in the United States, but the United States is actually one of the worst when it comes to this type of crime happening in our country. You sadly are a victim of that. Before we get into some of the specifics, can we just learn a little bit more about your background, where you grew up, what your family life was like, anything that would help us give, give a, get a good feel for who you were at age 15 when this took place? Sure. Um, I like to share my story because I need to shatter these preconceived notions that children that are trafficked are bad kids, they're runaways, they are from a single parent home, just overall bad situations. And that was not the case with me and other survivors that I've spoken to. So I grew up in Colorado. This is where this started. And at the age of 15, I was a normal teenager just doing normal things. I was shy, but I came from a professional two-parent home, upper middle class. I was a good kid. I didn't cause problems. So there was no reason that I would have stood out to somebody that wanted to groom me. And did you even know what sexual trafficking was at this point in time? Oh, goodness. No, there was not a name for it. No, there was there was nothing. It wasn't until I was probably in my 30s that I finally grasped the concept that that is what happened to me. And so let's start then with you at age 15. Like you said, just normal childhood, going to school, two parent household, they're busy working. How did grooming start with you? What what took place? The vulnerability started first. So I had a great group of friends when I was in middle school, but I was on the dividing line of high schools. So all my middle school friends were going to a different school. So I lost my friend structure. And that for me was very traumatic, which I think it is for all teens. You know, your friends are your world when you're a teenager. So I was going into high school alone, just as if I had moved to a new state. So that made me vulnerable and The fact that I followed behind my older sister who excelled at everything, never to blame her. She just has that gift of being really smart. 
I didn't have that gift. And right away going into the classrooms, I was identified as, oh, you're Terry's sister. So I didn't even have my name. I didn't even have a name. So losing my friend structure, being knowing that I was disappointing my teachers right away, it just made me feel extremely insecure. And the way the grooming started was I kind of found my place in the drama department. And it was a boy who was in charge of building the sets that started paying attention to me. And that was where the grooming started. He was being used by his father, who was actually the person that groomed me. And so as you became closer to this this boy who was in your drama class, I'm assuming you went to his house and that's how you interacted with his father. Yes. So my grooming period was three months. So somebody who is intent on grooming for the purpose of trafficking will take their time until they get the child in the right situation and has manipulated them enough that they don't have a way out. So uh, in my book, I, I named the boyfriend as Carl. And so Carl started to befriend me. And that took a couple weeks before I was ever even invited to these parties that they would have at his dad's house. Uh, his dad was young, related to teenagers very well, was considered a cool man. There was no mother in the home. So what you ended up doing, you would go to and spend the night at this boy's house. His father is there and your parents thought they were staying at a girlfriend's house, correct? correct. Absolutely. That's correct. So that was the first step of manipulation for me that I would lie to my parents. And then everything that I shared in confidence with Carl regarding just being a normal teenager, having issues with parents in the home and arguments and fights and stuff that we would have, all that stuff was being relayed to Carl's dad. And so he was using that as means to manipulate me. I didn't have any brothers. I always wanted a brother. So Carl's dad filled that void by identifying himself as the brother I never had. And that was a very bonding moment for, for me because I wanted a brother. And so was this a place, and I assume the answer is yes, but that you felt very accepted where the father interacted with you quite a bit. And like you said, there wasn't anything maybe alarming initially. He built that trust for three months. What did you or how did you view your relationship with Carl's father for those three months? I thought he was an ally and I wasn't the only girl that was there. He was grooming other people as well. But I began to trust him. He, he would build me up, build up my confidence level to where I thought, okay, I've got a new group of friends. They like me. I'm accepted. And he would say, well, I've, I've got your back. No one's going to mess with you. And, you know, things like that that I needed to hear. And they would, um, they were like my allies, and they didn't, Carl's, excuse me, Carl's dad did not come across as a parent figure. He came across as a friend figure. And so how often would you go over, over to the house after school? How often would you spend the night? How often were there men there other than Carl and his father? Well, there were men there all the time. Um, in the beginning, 
I would go a couple of hours during the during the grooming process, that three month period. Sometimes I would go for just a couple of hours, come home, stay the night, and then I would be asked to stay the weekend. And then once it got to the point where it changed from, oh, we're your friends and allies and the brothers you never had. Now it was expectations you better perform. In the beginning, I was being drugged. I would have stuff put in wine coolers that I would drink. And then there was one time I woke up and I was being assaulted, but I was restrained. So there's nothing that I could do to fight back. And everything that was happening to me was being videotaped. So that was blackmail to keep me compliant and complicit with what their expectations was. And remember back in that day, there was no way I could tell anybody what was happening to me, let alone, I couldn't even understand it myself. I, I didn't know anything about sex. It wasn't something that was talked about in my home. I didn't understand it. I just knew that I was being hurt and I was being violated in a way that I didn't want to be, but I had no one to talk to. And so, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is the three month part mark. It wasn't that you were even asked by these men to perform sexual acts on them. It was they at the three month mark started drugging you. And so yes. you there, there was no you weren't even saying I don't consent. You were just being drugged and raped at that time. Is that correct? That's correct. At the end of that three month period, during the three month period, it was the introduction of sexual material to there would be pornographic. At that time, it was like VHS tapes being played. There were um, nude magazines around the house. The other girls that had already begun being trafficking started wearing less clothes around the house, which was very confusing to me. I didn't I didn't understand what was happening. But it's very frightening when somebody that you've built a bond with who seems to be very friendly towards you and all of a sudden becomes this really mean, violent person, you become very submissive and you comply because you're told not only would I get hurt, but I was told that the videotapes would be shown to my family and my parents would lose their jobs and we would be homeless. And at the age of 15, the only thing that I could visualize as homeless was living on the train tracks. That's the only yeah. thing. So I thought that what would be what happened. And so when I would push back after these rapes would start, and in the, in the beginning, yes, I was drugged, but eventually it got to the point where I refused the drugs and I learned how to separate my mind from my body and just gained a huge pain tolerance. Um, it just it, That's how I coped. And um, I just got to the point where I would try to fight back, but then messages would be sent to me like my parents' cars were egged. Um, they let my dog loose, but the flat tires at our house. So I knew what those messages meant. So I needed to comply. Was there any time where you almost told your parents or told a friend, told your sister? Was, was there a point in time where you considered it or the fear was so great that it wasn't even a thought in your mind to tell someone? No, I never thought about it. I felt not only fear, but a tremendous amount of shame and still not really grasping what was happening to me. I didn't have a way to define it to myself. There was no way I could define it to anybody else. I knew that if I did share, I would be labeled as a bad kid. Right. You, you know, I would be it would be my fault. 
And there was no way I could take that on. I was barely coping what was happening to me. It got to the point where I would go to school Monday through Friday. I did graduate. I would be trafficked on the weekends and over the summer. What about your relationship with the young boy, Carl? Did he ever talk to you about this? Was he dealing with fear and shame as well? We never did discuss it, but I know that his dad was very abusive towards him. If he didn't do what was expected of him, which was to connect with other girls and get them into his world. So yes, Carl was abused. Carl never participated in any of the sexual assaults, although sadly he did follow his dad's footsteps and he is, uh, he became a serial rapist and is in jail now for his life, which is unfortunate because he did always have hopes of wanting to be able to get away from all of this and go and have a real life, but he was mentally and physically abused by his father as well. And so for these three years that this took place, did your parents notice anything about you, friends, teachers? Did anybody ask you if you were okay? Sometimes my friends would ask me if I was okay, because what I started to do was isolate myself. That was the only way I could cope. I would go into my bedroom and that's where I would hang out. I'd go have dinner. We'd have our generic conversations like most families still do now. And everybody, all the kids go off and do their own thing. Um, And sometimes, you know, my friends that I did have, which were just a handful of people, I I didn't trust anybody. Uh, And I certainly didn't want any of the people that I hung out with to possibly be brought into this situation. So um, I never told. Right. Uh, Yeah. And so when I became 18, my mother had asked me if I was going to go to college. And I said, no, because I was thinking, how am I going to be able to cope with college when I'm just barely coping with everything else? Uh, And my mother had gotten injured from the time that I started. She got injured while I was in high school and got addicted to pain medicines. So my mother changed just in who she was in general. So my mother had asked me, well, you're going to go to college? And I said, no. So she says, okay, you're an adult. You need to move out. Well, March is the month of my birthday. May was when I was going to graduate high school. And I said, okay, so that gives me time to figure out where I'm going to go. But then my mother came back to me and told me that I had to move out that weekend. Uh, And I didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, The friends that I did reach out to, I was told no. Um, So I ended up at Carl's house. That's where I remained until I graduated high school. And then in the summer of when I was 18, that's where the trafficking journey just exploded. And I was sold to three other traffickers during that time up until I was 21. Uh, One was a woman. And then my last trafficker was a high-end trafficker. So... it's kind of hard to explain and it's not like really a Jeffrey Epstein thing, but the clientele were prominent people, people with lots of money. They needed to create this persona that they'd have a nice young, attractive girl on their arms to go to events and things like that. And, but it was in Arizona that I was rescued um, by a woman named Pearl at the mailbox. And so I want to get to that real quick, though, before how many women, young girls did you interact with during the time that you were 15 to when you did get out of this altogether? How many girls? 
Oh my gosh, probably at least 20. Yeah. Probably. It's hard to tell. You you don't get close to one another. You never do. You don't share anything. You just, you're just there. Because if you share, they use that against you if they're trying to gain favor with the trafficker. And traffickers always have their top girls all the way down. And so everybody vies for that top position. Uh, so my last place I was at, I had enough favor, which is the weirdest thing. I had enough favor with my trafficker that I had the privilege of going to collect the mail. Now, who really thinks that? But that was my one moment of complete freedom where nobody was following me or watching what I was doing. So I would take my time and this was an apartment complex. So I would take my time and I would always see this little woman, older woman there and, and she'd start to talk to me. And, and of course I was a mean, nasty person then and ignored her. And, but over time, just her continuous presence and her calm nature gave me the sense that I could trust her. And so she started talking to me and she would say, honey, I know something's wrong when you're ready to go, I'll take you. And I thought, okay, uh, you know, I'm already dead. I'm just a walking shell of a human being. I'm dead. This is my life. Uh, I don't have, I don't know how to get out of it. And beatings and, you know, having guns to your head and, and they're misfiring, you know, I try not to focus on that stuff so much. I really focus more on the grooming aspect because that's where we have a chance to save our children. Uh, But Pearl was always at the mailbox. And so I did have a rough beating because a customer was not satisfied with my service, which is disgusting to say, but that's the reality of what trafficking is about. This trafficker's beatings were different because they never wanted to leave physical marks on the body. So there would be clothespins put on the lips. You'd be submerged in water until you pass out. Hot showers, cold showers, any type of intense pain without marks. So I'd had one of those and I saw Pearl at the mailbox and she said, honey, are you ready to go with me? And I did. I just walked away with her. I, I, I had lost so much hope that I figured there was nothing worse than what I was already experiencing. So why not walk away with this lady who's tiny, looked frail, who I felt I could overpower if I needed to. Yeah. Um, So I did. I walked away with her. Where did she take you? You know what? I don't know. Hmm. There was a point. I know I went to a church. I know I went, I know I was at a church. There was a point after she rescued me that I think my brain was able to shut down because I knew I was finally safe. There are years from that point on, I don't remember. I do not remember what happened in my life. And I guess that's just God's way of protecting me. Yeah, I don't need to remember it. Right. It's a grace to not remember it all. Absolutely. Um, I want to... I will get to what do parents need to know? How do we protect kids from this? I know that's why you speak out so that other children don't experience what you did. How has your healing journey been? What what does that look like? Where are you today on the healing process? Anything you can share? Yeah, I, I find it funny, truthfully, when it's when people use the word healing, because if you I see it as, okay, you've got a wound on your arm. You put a Band-Aid on it. You remove it, and there's new skin there. 
Healing from trafficking is a lifelong journey. It never goes away. You, what you do is you learn to live with it. Mm. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've had to relive a lot of my trafficking experiences because of the damage that has been done to my body. To date, I've had 12 surgeries to repair damage. So every time I go in and I prepare for a surgery, I remember these assaults. I remember the trauma. I remember why I'm having to be in this situation. So it doesn't go away. You just learn how to live with it. And um, that's another thing I need people to understand that if somebody becomes trafficked, it's a lifelong sentence in a way. You are just sentenced to trauma for the rest of your life. You manage it. You know, you get help. You have people that teach you how to stay away from things that trigger you or upset you. Cause this day I still have them. There's certain things in certain places that I just cannot go. Do you find that sharing your story has been part of your therapy and in, in working through the pain and the hurt? Yes and no. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yes, because I am determined to do everything I can to prevent one child one child from walking through the path that I did because I don't want a kid to innocently fall in the trap and go through the endless amount of pain. Um, and then on the other side, it's hard to, it's, it's, it pertains to sex, which is a subject that people are very uncomfortable with. And yes, there's times that I, I, I don't want to talk about it, but yet when I get on a stage or I stand up in front of somebody, God just gives me that boldness and that grace to say, this is what you need to say. I never read a script. I never do. I just stand up there and say, Lord, what do you want me to share with these people? And then that's what comes out of my mouth. And then what I learned to do is I just usually, if I can, the next day is just self-care veg, watch TV, hang out with my dog, eat ice cream, whatever I need to do to give myself some love. Yeah. Let's get to what parents can do. So I'm sure we have a lot of parents and grandparents listening right now who are aware that sexual trafficking takes place, but maybe hear your story and they can't believe it happened what we would view as a normal environment, a normal home. What are some of the signs that parents need to look out for with their own kids? And how does the social media sphere, the technology, the digital side of this play such a factor these days as well? Right. Well, first of all, trying to understand a teenager in itself is pretty much a challenge because of yeah. the mood swings with the teenager. For me, like I said, the biggest thing was isolation. I isolated myself. I removed myself from my family structure. I didn't want to interact. And the other survivors that I've spoken to, that was one of the things that they did too. Um, so that's a big key. Of course, if your child is coming home with items or another phone that you didn't purchase, those are also indicators. And I truly think that parents and all of us in general have forgotten to listen to the instincts that God has given us that, okay, something is not right. 
we need to investigate. Instead, we placate and we just go, no, I think I'm just being silly. You know, nah, this the kids are fine. When, no, you need to be there to ask those questions, have those uncomfortable conversations. And social media, yes, has been an amazing gift to, to groomers and traffickers. They no longer have to go and try and find a kid. They're right there on online. Yeah. Well, as we close out this conversation, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit organization. And if people are concerned about a child, if people have questions or just want to donate, want to get involved, tell us a little bit about your organization and how people can be part of it. Absolutely. So my nonprofit is pearlatthemailbox.org. I am an advocate, a mentor for other survivors. Uh, We're always needing cash donations to continue to spread our message for means of travel and gas and things like that, because I am self-funded. I will never take a dime from the government because then they will censor what I need to share. I um, am also a trauma-trained birth doula. So there's a team of three of us, and we work with the pregnant survivors that come out of trafficking. And their births are very traumatic because they're usually in a state of denial all the way up until they go into labor. And so we're there with them when they go into labor to prepare the medical staff for what they can expect will happen. And then we are with that mama all the way through labor and delivery and intervene however we need to. If if they need to remove baby for a while, we do that just to get mama in a safe place. And then we, we, we work with that mama for a whole year providing the basic baby items so that she doesn't have to stress about where she's going to get those items. And we help her on a path to learning how to parent while working through trauma. Yeah. Well, I just want to say on behalf of our listeners as well, we, first of all, are so sorry for what you have been through, but you're really an inspiration. Thank you for boldly sharing your story here and sharing it on the stage and so many different events and also for all your work helping other other young women, also boys who are sexually trafficked as well. And we just wish you um, so much grace and blessing with this organization. And as you continue to work through the trauma that you've experienced, Sherry Lopez with Pearl at the Mailbox, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching.